Welcome to another episode of the podcast Cook, Eat, Nourish with me, Fiona Staunton of Fiona's Food for Life. Today, I am talking to dietitian Dr. Jen Salib Huber. She talks all about the lovely community that she has developed where self-compassion is a core value and how to age well. Be sure you listen to the end where she gives her three tips to improve your health. So, Jen, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me today on my podcast. Thanks, Fiona. I'm really excited to be here. No, it's great. I mean, I we connected a couple of years ago or about only about a year ago, actually, on Instagram. Mm-hmm. And it's I feel like I've known you for ages. So today we have Dr. Jen Salib Huber. Would you mind introducing yourself to my audience, please? Yeah, so I describe myself as a Canadian uh, naturopathic doctor, registered dietitian, but most of the time now I'm working more as a international menopause nutritionist and intuitive eating coach because my family is temporarily living in the Netherlands. And so I'm not really kind of working in the same way that I was in Canada, but still doing lots of work in this in this space. Great. And a fantastic amount on social media. Oh, my goodness. Your social media is just growing and growing and you have really embraced reels and all of those things. So well done. Thanks. So your career to date, um, do you want to just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I mean, the first kind of I've been in practice now for, you know, 20 some years. And the first half of my practice was a pretty standard conventional nutrition, natural health practice where food was medicine. And a lot of what I was doing was prescribing ways to eat and not eat and giving people, you know, meal plans and recipes. And, you know, that started probably after even five or six years started to feel like something wasn't quite right. Something wasn't working the way that it was supposed to, it wasn't working the way that school taught us that it would. And as I started to get into my own midlife journey, and as I started to work more with people who were in this kind of midlife space themselves, really just started to be confronted with the idea that maybe what we were taught about health and nutrition and weight and weight loss and food wasn't exactly right. And so somewhere probably, I think around eight or nine years ago, I was introduced to intuitive eating And which is really, it's a framework essentially for helping people to rebuild a relationship with food that puts health in the driver's seat more so than the number on the scale. And it really just kind of gives them the, it helps them to take back kind of ownership of what feels good and what they eat and how they eat and and what are the rules and, and breaking down the rules. And so I've kind of renamed that as this undieting process that especially for people who, and and I was one of them. So I definitely lived this myself, you know, who spent 20 or 25 years as a chronic professional dieter, um, going from one diet to another, wondering what was wrong, wondering why things weren't working and getting more and more frustrated that I needed to really kind of break down my beliefs about food and nutrition personally and professionally, and needed to have a new set of tools to learn how to feed and fuel my body in a way that felt not just easy, but joyful and maintainable and sustainable and felt like it was listening to me and not just following a set of rules. So that's kind of like my career in a nutshell. And so now that um, I'm living in the Netherlands and have, you know, embraced this whole social media online world, as we all have, thanks to COVID, I guess, Um, I'm really just enjoying helping uh, women in any stage of midlife, you know, whether it's 40 or 80, 
um, just to kind of redefine that relationship with food so that they can get out of the diet cycle just once and for all. Great. And it's fantastic. All of the information that you're, you're giving and you, you know, you've got all the evidence backed information and it's, you know, I think you're offering a huge support to a great number of people. Um, Jen, could you tell me, what do you think are the, the biggest mistakes that women make when they're thinking about menopause nutrition? Oh, I love this question. You know, menopause nutrition is like a buzzword, right? And so menopause is a buzzword. Nutrition is a buzzword and you put the two together and it's just ripe for misinformation. And so the biggest mistake that I think most people make is believing that they have to do something substantially different just because they're in midlife, you know, feeling like all of a sudden they have to count, restrict, portion, control, do this, don't do that. And so, and that's for the most part, that's not the case. Um, you know, there are some subtle changes that happen to our nutrition needs. And of course, to our body, not so subtle, um, you know, things definitely change, but it doesn't mean that you have to revamp everything that you enjoy or think that you have to do, it just might require some fine tuning. And that's, you know, kind of part of the undieting process, you know, because so many people, their relationship with food is based on fear and it's based on what they can cut, what they have to cut out or what they should and shouldn't have. And instead of making that, those decisions all based just on, you know, what nutrients are in the food or calories or macros, I really like to tell people that your relationship with food is that it's a relationship. We have to make decisions about food every single day of our life, multiple times a day, and often for other people. <laughs> so it can't be perfect. It shouldn't be perfect. It should be joyful. It should be enjoyable. It should be something you look forward to. It shouldn't be something that you fear. Great. I love it. Yeah. Relationship with food and finding joy. Okay, great. Um, so is that really it? The, big, the biggest mistake you think really is that they're thinking they have to do something different or have you got more for me? Well, I think that that's like a starting point because often the first conversations that I have with people is what should I be eating, mm. you know, or what should I cut out? I might, or I must be doing something wrong because my body's changed or because I'm having hot flashes. So the kind of the second biggest mistake I think is that people will start to restrict carbohydrates. And I love debunking all the myths about carbohydrates because they are like rocket fuel. They're the secret sauce <laughs> to helping us feel better, whether it's, you know, brain fog or energy or fueling workouts or supporting mood, supporting sleep. There is so much evidence for including carbohydrates that um, I don't think gets across in the mainstream messaging because so much of the information that I think is readily accessible is that carbs are bad. You should have the least amount possible. And if you could have none, that would be even better. But, you know, most people feel like garbage when they try and, and have no carbohydrates or when they're choosing not to have them, you know, at times when they might actually really enjoy them or that it might add to their, not just their nutrition, but just their experience of eating. So I would say kind of carbs are, are, are the next one. And, and what type, what examples? Okay. So there's such a huge array of, yeah. of carbs. What would be say three really good carbs that you would advise people to take? Well, and let's back it up a little bit more. So when people talk about carbs, there's often a lot of pigeonholing good carbs, bad carbs, simple carbs, complex carbs. But at the end of the day, all carbs get filtered down to one thing and that's glucose. And glucose is a single sugar that a single molecule of sugar, and it is our body's preferred fuel. 
So our brain needs glucose, our red blood cells need glucose. And the conversations about good and bad tend to come down to, are there other things with those carbohydrates? So, you know, complex carbs, meaning that takes longer to break them down to sugar, but they also often come with things like fiber and other nutrients, simple sugars or simple carbohydrates tend to be more what I think people think of when they think of like sugary sweets and pastries and donuts and treats. But what we try and do with intuitive eating is we try and take the the morality out of those decisions around food and we try and have neutral discussions around them. So I just, you know, say, let's talk about what, what it is you're trying to accomplish in your diet when you're making choices about carbohydrates. If you're looking to fuel a long workout and you want to have, you know, or you're looking for higher fiber foods, or you're looking for more nutrient density, then we can talk about those things in terms of those labels. So instead of calling it a good carb or a bad carb, we might just want to say that one takes longer to digest than the other, or one is more nutrient dense. But I think whole grains are kind of a win-win for everyone. So whether it's whole grain wheat or whole grain oats or... Um, you know, quinoa or bulgur or rice, even any of those whole grains that, you know, kind of are minimally processed and are still likely to be intact with the nutrients that they're grown with, um, I think are an underestimated uh, or undervalued addition to any diet, but especially in midlife. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, I love whole grains. I, I think I feel so much better. Um, when I've had, I've just made a lovely whole grain bread full of loads of seeds and everything. And it is so nice. So yeah, whole grains. And it's so satisfying, you know, having a piece of bread like that, or even adding, you know, rice to a soup or having oats in the morning, like there's nothing more satisfying than that. Yeah, definitely. So we have, uh, first thing that you don't do anything different and watching your relationship. The second one was uh, that you don't, the mistake would be thinking you have to restrict carbs. Yeah. Do we have any other big mistakes? Well, you know, this is kind okay. of where the, I could probably have a list of 10 things that <laughs> the next two, but um, I, I would say the other biggest mistake is that people over-prioritize protein. Now, I always say that there's a caveat with this because yes, protein is very important. And yes, women in menopause need a little bit more because that helps us to maintain muscle. Um, and it does help us to feel fuller longer and it can help to balance blood sugar and all of those things that we start to think about in midlife. But it, I find that people are often adding it in and they're over-prioritizing it. So they're choosing it over other things. And so, you know, they'll have one and a half chicken breasts. And even though they were full and satisfied with one, because it's this more is better kind of thing. So that's kind of, you know, this happens in, in diet and wellness culture, that if something is good, then more is better. And if something is bad, then less is better. And so when people start to think about, you know, they, they kind of put these things on a pedestal, it's like, oh, this is high in protein. Great. I'm going to have this instead of maybe the more balanced meal, the more satisfying meal, the one that you can choose most often. Um, you know, I think a lot of people end up over prioritizing protein. So I do a lot of kind of myth busting around protein in that. Yeah, it is really important. And I love to help people include it more often, but I'm never going to say you need to have 80 grams at a meal, you know, because that's really above and beyond what we need. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. So um, if we were to look at then in terms of 
making weight loss goals a proxy for health. Yeah. What, what are the problems you see there? You know, I, I like to describe, I'm full of analogies always. They're bad, but they're, they kind of get the point across. And so when it comes to making decisions about food, when you're making decisions about food for weight loss, those tend to be very different and often polar opposite of the decisions we make about food for health. So this is where the analogy comes in. So imagine that you have signed up for uh, a nature hike to look at birds and you show up for this hike and you're really excited because you're there to look at the birds and you're excited that your guide is going to tell you all about these birds that you see in this nature hike. And that, but they tell you that along the way, there's these golden eggs that are hidden. And if you're here for just the, the bird watching, great. But anybody who finds a golden egg will get a prize at the end of the walk. So even though you're only there for the birds, of course, you're distracted by looking for this golden egg. And even if you didn't even want the egg to begin with, if you get to the end of the walk and you haven't found it, you're going to feel a little disappointed. You're going to feel a little let down. And that's exactly what I see happen when, when women come in and they say, I really want to lower my cholesterol, work on my blood sugar, have more energy, work out, do all these things. And maybe they've added in these amazing things that they're, they're cooking more often. They're enjoying food. They've added in whole grains. They have more fiber. They're pooping every day. Like all of these great things are happening, but if they don't lose weight, they feel like it's not working. So I just always say like, let's just try and put the weight loss goals on the back burner because intuitive eating isn't anti-weight loss, but it doesn't really welcome weight loss as pursuing intentional weight loss as a goal, because it is so often diametrically opposed to what we want to work on for health. So in that analogy, which I can see myself totally in the nature book, <laughs> um, the golden egg is a weight loss. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great. And so, you know, oftentimes, um, I think there's a lot of messaging for women in midlife that says, oh, look at this diet. That's not a diet. And it's just going to help you to be healthy. And as a side bonus, you're going to lose weight. So even if people who are want to prioritize health over weight loss, it's not saying that they never want to pursue weight loss. Cause I think that's a big ask for people who have especially maybe experienced body changes in midlife or who have been trying to lose weight for a long time. But I really don't think that you can be pursuing both at the same time. Um, because you're going to end up in this push pull situation that, you know, the decisions that you have to make for weight loss may not be supporting your health. Um, 1200 calorie diets are such a great example of that, that, you know, for most people, 1200 calorie diets are not enough to meet our needs. And if you're not eating enough energy to meet your needs, your body's going to start burning muscle and burning the protein that you're eating for energy, which is really counterintuitive to, to staying strong and healthy and well in menopause and post-menopause. So if you want to prioritize being able to climb the stairs at 80 and run with your grandkids and, and not fall and break a hip, you have to eat more than 1200 calories. So that's kind of why I say, let's not make weight a proxy for health. And let's just see what happens to your weight when you're eating in a sustainable and maintainable way that's supporting your health and well-being. Love us. And I think it's hard to... Uh imagine what you'll be like at, at 80. And I think many people uh, um, of our age are also looking after our elderly parents. And now I am, I can kind of go, okay, well, do I want to be this way or that way? Or, do, you know, so it is, but it is a hard thing to think of when you're in your forties. Okay. Well, 
what yeah. I do now is going to affect what I'm going to be like in my 80s. It's um, it's a challenge, isn't it? Well, I mean, I look at my my teen and my tweens um, and I remember being their age and I couldn't imagine what 40 looked like. Mm. <laughs> and now I'm 45 and I think I really couldn't have imagined this. Um, you know, I think that for women in our 40s and 50s, it is a different world now for the better, hopefully, than it was when we were teens looking at people in their 40s and 50s. And realistically, I really do want to still be traveling and living independently and not worrying about breaking a hip every time, you know, I stumble. And in order to do that, I have to eat enough. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Um, Okay. So what would you think is a missing ingredient for most women in midlife? And I love all the words you use around your podcast, Midlife Feast, and all of the, you you a great play on words. So what is the missing <laughs> ingredient, which is what you asked all of your guests? <laughs> it is. And I, I think that it has changed over the years. And it's not actually food. But I think what is missing most is a community that is based on self-compassion. Because there are so many places and spaces that women can find, you know, dietary tribes who will, you know, do what they're doing and, and, and give them the support that they think that they want. But at the end of the day, there's not a lot of flexibility in those dietary tribes. And so I think a community that allows, you know, women who are in this stage of life to just kind of come together through the lens of self-compassion and say, yeah, we're all here because that's, those are the conversations that I have. I have them on Instagram. I have them on the podcast with everyone like, Hey, why are we talking about this? Why aren't we sharing more? Why aren't we telling people about, you know, the things that happen other than hot flashes? Cause everybody hears about that. But like, what about, what does it feel like when you don't recognize yourself in the mirror? because your body has changed, you know, that, that change is pre-programmed into our DNA. We lose estrogen. We go from a more pear shaped build to an apple shaped build. And there's not a whole lot you can do about that. You know, HRT doesn't change that. Um, HRT is great for hot flashes, but it's not going to change the programming in your DNA that says, this is what we look like when we have less estrogen. And so how do we start to have those conversations that don't start with, I hate my body. What can I do? How can we start to support each other in shifting those conversations and saying, this is really uncomfortable, but I don't want to hate myself anymore. I don't want to try and hate myself into a body that I love, or maybe we just need a community to commiserate, uh, you know, and, and to support cheers and challenges around, you know, what it's like to finally sleep through the night after three years of broken sleep because of perimenopause. <laughs> You know, I was ready to shout that through the rooftops when I finally came through the other side of that. Yes, that me too. I mean, the, having the sleep back is just so good. <laughs> it's such it a really is. I don't like, I'm kind of just about six, maybe seven months kind of into this next phase, which is kind of full menopause for me. And I still don't take it for granted when I wake up in the morning and I've slept for seven hours and I'm not hot and sweaty and I feel rested. <laughs> Like <laughs> for so many years, it was, oh, what time is it? And oh my God, yeah. I'm having another hot flash. And, you know, just waking up with that dread, knowing that you had to make it through your day because you were so exhausted. So for anybody listening, you do get past that. That does get better. But, but yeah, I think the missing ingredient is community. I think that we have 
you know, not served women well in providing them with a community to age well. Um, and, you know, really with an expanded definition of, well, what does it mean to age well? Um, you know, we tend to think the the anti-aging industry, I think, has co-opted that. And, you know, we think of it as turning back the clock or delaying aging. And I don't want to delay aging. I love getting older. I just want to do it in a way that feels good. I don't want to do it in a way that has to feel controlled all the time. Sure. Yeah, I love it. And I think there might be a rumor that you have a solution for this community. Is that right? <laughs> yes. So I'm really excited. So my, my podcast is the Midlife Feast and that's been uh, almost a year now. Well, I guess it has been a year now. And um, a lot of the conversations that I was having on the podcast, off the podcast, on Instagram, you know, were around, well, where can we talk more about this? Or I would get messages from people and say, I just love how you describe XYZ or, you know, do you have a course or, and I, and I definitely do have courses, but they still felt like they had starts and stops. And even the people who would finish the group programs would say, okay, great. Well, what's next? And so the midlife feast is growing and is going to be, is a, is a community now. And so this community is really just to have more of the conversations that I've been having on the podcast about how do we nourish a, a healthy relationship with food and midlife, um, you know, after a lifetime of dieting, or maybe even just a few months of feeling inundated by all, the, all these diet culture messages. So there's some choose your own adventure, um, kind of self-study quick little videos that are meant to be like 30 or 35 minutes on various topics things like carbohydrates. How do I know which is good, which is bad? Um, what should I choose more often? Things like protein, ages and stages of menopause, phytoestrogens for hot flashes. So it's meant to be where you can kind of drop in and there's new content being added all the time. And, you know, as you experience these changes, cause it, it's over 10 years for most of us, really from the start of early perimenopause until we're done, just to be able to have access to that. And there's also a menopause nutrition for undieters club as part of the community, which is for people who want to maybe put a bit more intention towards um, making some changes and using that intuitive eating framework to, to have a healthy relationship with food that will have kind of monthly challenges, two calls per month. So people can, you know, kind of access me in that way a little bit more personally than maybe they get on Instagram. And then there is the community. So there's, you know, message boards that are designed to just share cheers and challenges. There's a everything but the kitchen sink board where people can just, you know, post about things that are happening if they want to share them with people who get it. Um, but it's really just about creating, creating community. Great. Sounds uh, fascinating. So how does somebody join or become a member of this community? So if you go to menopausenutritionist.ca, you will find a link to learn about the Midlife Feast community. Um, you can join, it's a monthly membership. So you can join anytime, you can leave anytime, you can you know, kind of make it work for you. Um, but the idea is that especially these founding members who are coming in in October and November of this year, really not only will get to enjoy, you know, kind of a founding members rate that will not be around in January when um, enrollment reopens, but will help to shape what content is there. So every month there's a monthly theme. And so, you know, October is menopause. And of course you are going to be doing some menopause cooking for us in the community. Um, but you know, every month there are different themes. And so February, for example, being heart health, we're going to be focusing on um, you know, gentle nutrition for heart health and how can we add in, you know, more of the things that will 
will help to support healthy cholesterol, lower blood pressure. Um, January is all about habits. And so there's going to be, you know, guests talking about how to change your relationship with alcohol or how to build in healthy habits in a way that you're not counting and tracking all the time. So it's all the things that influence your relationship with food, along with lots of gentle nutrition discussions about food itself. Sounds fascinating. So say, for example, because I, I haven't actually done a membership program before. Uh, so say, for example, someone joins in December, they can catch back up on the previous yes. content. So the content stays there and they can just go in and out, but they would have two calls, two group calls a month with you where they can kind of ask questions, et cetera. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly it. So the value of the membership really just builds with time. And as more content is added and more resources are added and, you know, anybody who's taken a course with me, the, the value in those group calls is I think a big part of the value of any program, because not only are, you know, do you have that, that FaceTime with maybe somebody with some expertise, but you also have FaceTime with people who know exactly what you're going through. And I, that, that social learning model of hearing your own experience reflected in others is validating it's normalizing and it's comforting. So I just love that, that this is coming together and, um, and that more women can share their experience. Fantastic. Cause I think often, particularly when it comes to, to perimenopause, people don't even realize that they're there, but then they hear somebody else asking the question and they realize, oh my God, that's, that's exactly what I felt like the other day, or maybe they'd hear it. And then a week later, they'll go, oh, now I know what they're talking about. So it, it is a really, I agree with you. It's a really good learning uh, from hearing with other people and, and maybe the questions they have, because no two people's experience is the same. Um, exactly. but yeah, that sounds fantastic. Okay. And so another question I wanted to ask you is, and I might be opening a big can of worms here, but if I were to say keto and midlife, what are your <laughs> thoughts? Just say no to keto. That's, I'm going to get that. I'm going to actually going to get that made as like a t-shirt. I'm, I'm already starting to think about, you know, like merch for the, um, for the midlife feast community. And one of the things is a t-shirt that's going to say, just say no to keto. Um, <laughs> I think that keto is trendy and like any other fad diet isn't really based in evidence. And so the idea that carbohydrates cause weight gain and that therefore eliminating most of them will result in weight loss isn't really evidence-based because yes, in the short term, it does just like any other diet. So the evidence that we have about any kind of, you know, program that pursues intentional weight loss is that it will work for three to four months by six months. Um, it starts to no longer work. And by 12 months, you know, there really isn't any difference. And so it's just another way for people to control their calories, but it feels different because you're allowed to eat the things that most diets don't allow you to eat. You're allowed to have bacon and cheese and fats. And so initially people feel more excited about it maybe, and maybe they do stick with it a little bit longer. But the problem is that most people, and I've done it, it was, it was my last diet. I actually talk about it in the um, last season's episode of my podcast. It was my last diet. And you feel like a pile of garbage. Um, after a few weeks, you're exhausted. Um, you know, if for a lot of people, it really tanks their energy levels because, you know, carbohydrates are, are what our muscles use for quick energy. It's what our brain uses. So any endurance is just completely shot. Um, you know, I wasn't sleeping well. And I see that all the time in people who are trying to do keto that, you know, they're, they're, 
blood sugar is, is so low that they actually have a hard time getting falling and staying asleep. And we know that carbohydrates in the second half of the day actually do reduce the amount of time needed to fall asleep. So they do promote sleep. So, you know, keto is just another fad diet. And, um, but the, the problem for women in midlife, especially is that it can actually be really stressful on our body. So low carb diets and keto diets have been shown to increase the stress hormone cortisol. And that pretty much is the last thing you want to do. <laughs> In midlife, um, you know, there's enough going on. Your body doesn't need anything else to worry about, let alone where its next meal is coming from. Because the ketones that are produced when you're in that really ultra low carbohydrate state are your body's breaking case of emergency fuel. And it's not what your body's going to thrive on. It's literally what it makes to make sure that it, it's not dying. So I, I think as well that it, it, it takes a joy out of food. Because, I mean, if you've got to think, oh, I've got to weigh this, I've got to have this, I'm going to have something different to everyone else, and it's all these can and can'ts, et cetera, I just rather, well, you know me, I think of the enjoy food, and I think, how can I add more nutrients? And I just, yeah. it must be so challenging to go through such a strict regime around, you know, something like yeah. keto with food, but... I, I mean, I remember that. when I when I was doing it, and Friday night is... with more so when we lived in Canada was, was homemade pizza night. My husband would make homemade pizza, this beautiful fluffy dough, like just delicious pizza. And when I was doing keto, I was making this ridiculous fathead pizza crust, which was made from Parmesan. No, no, wait, it was mozzarella cheese and coconut flour. And it was literally like a pound of melted mozzarella and coconut flour that you would shape, that you would melt and shape into a crust. And it was absolutely disgusting. You know, and and I I really have this vivid memory of like my oldest daughter saying, "Mom, why aren't you having Dad's pizza?" And just really, really feeling like really awful about that. That you know, she was old enough to notice that I was eating something different, and um, and just realizing the impact that that has on on you know people that we live with, especially children. So when it comes to modeling a healthy relationship with food, I don't think any restrictive diet is, is working towards that, but especially one that really doesn't allow you to eat what other people are eating. I think that's such an under, um, undervalued aspect of our relationship with food. Yes, very true. I mean, you really have to model the, the behavior with the, you know, the kids will just pick it all up and, you know, as you say, store it away and then come back. But I, yeah, I see that quite often. Okay, so I liked you like to ask your guest questions. My questions I like to ask are, can I please have your three tips to improve your health? So to improve the health of your nation, what can people do? According to Dr. Jen Salib Huber. <laughs> I love this question. So kind of boring, but one is just flexibility. You know, there's this all or nothing culture around health and food, especially and, and exercise that it has to be, you know, hundred percent or it's not anything at all. And just give yourself a bit of grace that, you know, we're human beings often living busy lives and you have to have some flexibility in what your goals are. So, you know, one example that I always use is around fruits and vegetables. So people will often feel like if they haven't gotten 10 servings a day that, you know, well, I haven't, haven't gotten any, so I'll just start again tomorrow. Um, and instead of, I say, well, let's just make the goal more plants on your plate. Let's not give it a number. Let's just try and have 
fruits and vegetables that you enjoy accessible where you can see them and just add them as often as you can. Don't keep score, keep count, you know, just keep adding them in ways that you find enjoyable. So just having that flexibility that it doesn't have to be a number-based goal. It doesn't have to be perfect, which kind of leads to my next one, which is progress over perfection. You know, especially when it comes to habits, especially in midlife, you know, we've all heard the saying about, you know, can a old dog learn new tricks? We can, but it does take some intention and effort. And if you've been doing the same thing, the same way. If you've been going to a drive-through for a breakfast sandwich every day for 25 years, you can't expect that it's going to be easy to start making oatmeal every morning. So if you start by making oatmeal once a week and you haven't done that before, that's progress. Don't feel like you failed because you didn't do it six days of the week. So just kind of, again, sticking with that, getting out of all or nothing. Um, and then joyful movement. So when it comes, so one of the principles of intuitive eating, of course, is that movement is, is wonderful for our bodies. We're designed to move. And, you know, when it comes to movement and exercise and aging well, and, you know, aging well into the second season of life, finding ways to move your body in ways that you enjoy as often as you can will never fail you. And so we, again, we get so caught up in what's the best exercise, you know, and is it the one where I'm, you know, jumping off of boxes and rolling through hoops? Probably not. (laughs) Um, You know, the evidence is that walking is the most evidence-based movement. If you walk every day, um, you will enjoy tremendous health benefits from that mentally, physically, emotionally, your joints will thank for your, thank you. Your blood sugar will thank you. Your cholesterol will thank you. Um, and it's, you know, it's a zero equipment thing that most people, I'm not going to say everyone, cause I'm sure there'll be someone who says that they can't, but most people can access it. So finding ways to move your body as often as you can in ways that you enjoy. Fantastic. I love them. So we've got flexibility, progress over perfection and joyful movement. Yeah. And I think they're really accessible for everyone and easy for, for people to uh, to work on. So thank you very much for that. Would you, I will pop the links in the show notes, but would you mind telling people if they want to get in touch with you, say on Instagram, or they want to find more about your membership program where they can um, do that, please? Yeah. So the best place to find me is always going to be on Instagram, which is at menopause.nutritionist. And the link in my the bio is always kept up to date with all the things that I've got going on, including newsletters, some of my free guides, links to the membership and, and anything else that um, people might need, including how to get in contact with me. Fantastic. So thank you very much, Jen. Thank you so much. I, I love talking to you and, uh, and I appreciate the chance to be a guest. Much for listening to today's podcast on Cook, Eat, Nourish with me, Fiona Staunton of Fiona's Food for Life. I'd really appreciate if you would subscribe, rate and review the podcast to help spread the word. And if you pop over to my website, fionasfoodforlife.ie, you'll find lots of recipes, videos, inspiration and upcoming courses. Thanks a million. Mm-hmm.